What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Virit Agarwal, and let's get started. If this is your first time joining us, I'm excited to have you, and thanks for making the time. If you're returning, welcome to a new segment on the High Flyers podcast called Curiosity Center. A number of you have asked for specialized episodes in addition to the existing episodes, so I've listened and I'm excited to get this going. So what is this segment about? Two things. One, shining a light on exciting brands, founders and leaders, showcasing the startup they're building, how they started, the unknowns and an inside view of the industry and what a career for you could look like. And secondly, unpacking specific topics. For example, Web3, crypto, medicine, transport, all in an intro for beginners format and give you the ABCs to get started. These Curiosity episodes will be available two to three times a month alongside the existing weekly episodes. And you'll also see certain episodes being sponsored. And I'll be very open about that. And as always, every episode will be candid and neutral. And I'd love for you to visit our website to find out more. The link is in the show notes. When we set up Arrive and Thrive, I had just been made redundant from my my full-time job. And throughout that period, I was like coaching and counseling people part-time um, in, under my own business name anyway. So I was kind of dab, dipping my toe in the water of running my own show um, whilst working for someone else. And then when that um, was made clear that I was going to be made redundant, I said to Dan, you know, we can we can really take this and, and try and, you know, start to run some workshops and start to be quite a little bit more proactive um, than we were because at the start it was very much an idea Then we wanted to do a podcast and we wanted to do some other stuff that supported international students. But I think the hardest part when you start a business is just get getting started and, and actually taking action and, and getting going. That's Tyson Day, co-founder of Arrive and Thrive and welcome to episode one of Curiosity Centre. Arrive and Thrive is a career education social enterprise helping students set and achieve career goals with school-based workshops, coaching and facilitation. Dyson and his team have worked with 53 schools and supported 12,000 students with their 12 programs. Today you'll learn about how the business started, how they found schools as their key market, the economics of building an education-first business who are the other players that inspire Tyson and how COVID has changed the landscape of learning providers like Arrive and Thrive. Please enjoy exploring your curiosity as I did mine through this conversation. Tyson Day, welcome to the show. Thanks, Vita. How you going, man? I'm great. It's great to have you on. It's the first episode of a new segment called Curiosity Center, and, and I can't think of anyone better to start this with. I think you kind of define curiosity pretty well through the work you do. So let's start off with some quick facts to give give the listeners some perspective. Where, where were you born and where do you live now? 
So I was born in uh, Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, um, East Melbourne to be precise. And now <laughs> I still live in uh, Australia and Victoria, um, but I live on the Mornington Peninsula. So down on the coast. Great part of the world for listeners who might be from overseas. And what was your first job and what do you do now? So my first job was, uh, my first job was, it was funny because my my first job that I got paid um, was probably a basketball court announcer. So I think I was about 13 um, and, you know, the legal working age here in Australia is 15. So, you know, I was, I got in early um, with someone that I knew and they just said, you know, do you want to, do you want to play some music and, and call out some names at a, a basketball game um, that was like a women's semi-professional league in my local area when I was like 13. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. You paid me 20 bucks a game. And um, that was my first ever job where I was making, I think, 40 bucks on the weekend as a 13-year-old. So I was completely stoked. Um, <laughs> and now I'm a, uh, a founder of or co-founder of Arrive and Thrive. And um, I'm a facilitator, so like an educational facilitator and um, career coach. And I love what you do. I mean, that's why you're on the show. So let's let's start off with that arrive and thrive story. And and, mm-hmm. and I know your journey leading up to that is fascinating. But how, how did you come up with the idea of arrive and thrive? And how did it start? Yeah. So it was a uh, a brain a brainchild with um, one of my best mates, Dan Lenardi. Um, we actually studied together, um, and he's also a careers counselor. And Arrive and Thrive was originally meant for to support international students who are arriving into Melbourne and helping them thrive, mm. hence the name Arrive and mm. Thrive. Um, but like any business, you adapt and you try and um, you know figure out where your position is in the marketplace. And we found that we were best suited to working more with uh, probably younger people in the high school space. And so we're a careers education social enterprise. So we go into high schools and we also work with TAFE providers and and tertiary providers and help young people figure out what they want to do after they've finished their study and uh, give them skills, mindsets and abilities to be able to do that type of thing. Now, listeners will be hearing that and going, Tyson knows exactly what he's doing. And I'm sure we've spoken about this off off camera. Early on, you don't. And early on, it's just an idea and and Mm. you've got a kind of purpose and you want to turn it into reality. Can you think back to the first three, six months, like you had this idea, how did you start? Like, who did you reach out to or did you build a website or did you just start with mates? Like, what was that initial period like? Yeah, good question. So, you know, the initial period of, first of all, was was quite um, testing because, you know, we, we had this idea and we were, we could see it working because we worked um, in the industry. Both Dan and I worked in, in university systems and we understood that there was a need for this type of support for, for students. Um, and at the start, we were just kind of going, well, is it how are we going to A, get paid to do this type of thing? Um, so our mm. idea kind of came about helping people first before actually figuring out if we could get paid or if it could actually become a business. Um, when we set up Arrive and Thrive, I had just been made redundant from my my full-time job and throughout that period I was like coaching and counseling people part-time um in, under my own business name anyway so I was kind of dab dipping my toe in the water of running my own show um whilst working for someone else and then when that um was made clear that I was going to be made redundant I 
said to Dan, you know, we can we can really take this and and try and you know start to run some workshops and start to be quite a little bit more proactive um, than we were because at the start it was very much an idea. Then we wanted to do a podcast and we wanted to do some other stuff that supported international students, but. I think the hardest part when you start a business is just get getting started and, and actually taking action and, and getting going. And so, um, yeah, we just were able to score a couple of workshops for, for students and people that we had met in industry. Um, and it was through a friend of mine that kind of gave us our first school workshop and that went really well. And, um, Touch wood, it's been it's been going well ever since, just through um, word of mouth and referrals and other education sponsorships through like um, career industries and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's a long winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, I like it, and I like what he said earlier about your initial kind of goal was building a business to provide a need, not to earn money. Mm. And I think people listening, that's so important because a lot of people start a business to earn a bit of cash, and then. Yep. That motivation disappears. That's a reminder that I've had to remind myself all the time. So I think whenever I've felt like stuck in business, it's when I've always gone, oh man, what? why aren't our programs selling? Or, you know, how can we make more money? And it's the wrong type of question to ask yourself, in, especially mm. in my space in education. It's like, how can we support more people? Or how can we, you know, help others? Like, and I think that's a really, really good point you raise. And, and tell me about on that, like the problem area, because you, you're very specific in terms of, you said international, but now it's more high school students. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's yep. my understanding yeah. of speaking to you. Um, and, and I'm build, trying to build something similar with Curiosity Center. It's very early days. And I think one of the common pieces of advice I get is go granular and know your kind of target audience. But like you said, early on, you don't because you're mm. experimenting and you're trying. Tell me about that journey, like starting off with international students as your focus and now being high school students. Yeah. Like I think when I, cause I'm, I'm a qualified coach and counselor and, and through, so through my training as a coach and counselor, people were always saying to me, you need to find your, your client niche. Like, what's your client niche? What are people who are who are the people who are going to pay you to coach them and and to counsel them? And so that question was always kind of floating through my mind. And I noticed when we started to support international students, um, I didn't necessarily feel that we were particularly um, re- relatable sometimes um, because we didn't actually understand that their path. Because how could we when we weren't international students ourselves? Uh, mm. ourselves and I think that's a really important part is is knowing with your business knowing the client's journey and that was something that we were still trying to to figure out um, where with high schools I know exactly what it was like in high school as like a year 10 or a year 11 student not knowing what you really want to do because I was that person um, in high school so I think that was kind of a an, an aha moment for me and also when we were trying to set up the business for international students, there's a lot of other people doing some really cool stuff and really valuable stuff in the international space. And, and to be honest, mate, I just didn't feel we could compete with those players in the way that they were developing programs. And so I felt the pivot was, was necessary for our, for our business survival. That's a really interesting point, and I think I'm assuming you'd have discovered that through conversation. I think again, back to listeners wondering how you do that. The way I'm doing that at the moment is through conversation. That's how we met. We I reached out to you, and I was curious about your learnings. 
would be my suggestion. Were there any other ways that you discovered that niche and that kind of target within your first, I'm assuming, 6, 12, 18 months? Yeah, I think um, just reflection as well. Like Dan and I would take a lot of time out just having a coffee, having a beer, um, you know, jumping on the phone, going, hey, mate, I've just thought of this and kind of workshopping it and pa- and what mm. we refer to as a powwow, <laughs> mm. powwowing it out to just go, you know, are my thoughts in in this space correct? Like, do you think there's a need for, you know, young males to be in schools inspiring other young people um, around different career choices? Is there anyone else doing that? No, there isn't. Like, is there something that we could bring that's fresh to the table? Yeah, probably. So, like, there's there was that constant process of kind of going, okay, this is who we are. Like, what's our unique selling point? Um because quite often Arrive and Thrive is a brand, but as facilitators, you you bring your own personal brand to that space too. Um, and you want to try and make sure that you're relatable. So for us, we were kind of going, okay, what's our unique selling point? Where young career counselors who have a fresh perspective on what's out there um, and we have a different perspective of what types of jobs are, are booming and what young people want to hear. And we kind of let that, kind of drive our our sense of direction in terms of our, our clients and then it was just trying to demonstrate to the the people who were booking our programs for students that we knew what we were talking about we were experts in the field and and that can take some time when you're setting up a business because you do need that um you, you are early in developing that reputation um but lucky for us we were qualified careers people um delivering careers content so we kind of had the a bit a few runs on the board already if that makes sense now a big reason for me to launch this segment is to showcase career parts and and there'd be listeners who might be high school students listening to this going tyson's talking about the fact that he was a careers counselor prior so it kind of adds up and then now he's a facilitator and he's a player in the education space what if someone doesn't have that background but still wants to be of service and help others can what have been your learnings there like do you think others can also have a career path? And if so, what are maybe some of the skills people need to learn to have a career path in your industry? Yeah, so I think the first thing is is always find someone that you admire for the work that they do. So for me early on, there was someone that I came across when I was working um, for another education company and I saw him facilitate a workshop and I was like, I want to do what that guy's doing. I don't know what I don't know how he got into that position mm. of facilitating and running like education activities. And that was in the corporate space, but mm. I was like, whatever he's doing, I, I want to be able to do. Um, and I literally um, tracked down his email address and just asked him to, to have a coffee. And I said, mate, I'd love to buy you lunch or have a coffee just to understand what you do for work. And, and you know, I saw you facilitate this workshop. I'd love to be able to do that type of thing. And I was never trained as, um, or had formal training as a facilitator. So I think the first thing is if you really want to do a particular career path um, and you don't have a background in that, connect with someone who is doing something that you want to do um, and learn how they got into that particular area. Understand what courses they've done, understand what books they've read or content they've consumed um, or and just understand their own journey because then you'll be able to relate that to your own circumstances and actually see if it's a good fit before you actually do invest in some training or some some, um, some other learnings to, to kind of take that next step. Are there any particular skills? And the reason yeah, I ask cool. this is because you, you work with the 
listener audience in a way, right? You're yep. working with school, schools and universities and students. And, and, and as we know, one of the big challenges in today's society is career paths because you've got almost too many options yep. or you don't have the right access. You have the awareness. It's like kind of the LinkedIn example where you can message the CEO, but you don't have a common connection. So the CEO yep. won't respond. Are there any points of advice you give listeners there firsthand you've learned about if they, one, want to start a business like you're doing or two, they want to become a facilitator at Arrive and Thrive? Like what what would you be looking for? Yeah, so I think I'm always open for I, – I'm a firm believer that you can always teach skills, like certain skills, um, but you mm. can't teach you know personal attributes as, as easily as you can teach skills. So – if someone naturally, you know, enjoys talking to people um, as a facilitator, you generally need to be um, a curious first and foremost. Um, be you know open and aware for like your social intelligence. So being able to read a room, being able to read other people in the room, to understand if the content that you're sharing is landing um, or not, and maybe you need to change the pace at which you're facilitating or do a, a change of state activity where if you see the energy of the room dipping, how can you spark that energy again? So I think there's um, certain skill sets as a facilitator and a careers coach that are really beneficial. Um, so being able to actively listen to someone, clearly understand what their question is, how it impacts them and, and perhaps others in the in the room, um, being socially aware, so, so a level of social intelligence, uh, being able to communicate clearly so your audience will change. Um, for me, one week I might be talking to a bunch of um, year nine um, all girls at an all girls school and then the next week mm. I might be talking to some international students where um, their English skills are still developing. So being able to change your facilitation to be able to relate to year nine girls and then the next week relate to international students from diverse countries is, is a bit of a skill set that you you develop when you start to practice and, and embrace your own facilitation style. So that would probably be the main key skills that I would look for um, if you're wanting to get into facilitating and, and education. It reminds me of the difference between a mentor and a coach. Like yeah. I remember talking to someone a while back and and I was like, I can't be a coach because I don't have the lived experience and this person is a coach kind of for a living. Yeah. And she said for a coach, kind of the points you've said, she said you don't have to have lived experience. You kind of mirror to the other person or you're mm. facilitating was a mentor has to often have lived experience yeah. and give specific examples for a situation. Yeah, and 100% I think that agree, probably is, mm. Mm. Absolutely. And I think, and I think that's the, the, can be the biggest challenge for people wanting to get into um, our, my industry in terms of like careers and, and education or, or coaching is that, that notion that uh, I don't have much lived experience or I don't have, you know, a success story to, to share. And I'm, I'm always telling people who want to get into coaching or to get into counseling or, or facilitation is just just become a really skilled communicator and listener and being able to read perhaps the words someone isn't saying um, or perhaps the, the questions that the room isn't asking because then you can pull those out to really deliver like a powerful message or, or a powerful um, experience for your audience or client. 
And I'd probably add to that that if you're young and you're, or even if you're later in your career, those skill sets are transferable. You can 100%. take them to a corporate environment or a entrepreneurial venture or if you want to move countries. They are cross-functional experiences mm. that irrespective of language, virtual world, um, physical world, 2030, 2040, COVID, they're all relevant, yep. right? So I think that's something totally. people often forget. Yeah. Mm. And that concept of like identity capital. So like – as you said, like everyone has something that they can offer in a particular space. Like I'm not a very, I'm I'm not a um, a numbers or a very analytical person, but I am confident that I would have a transferable skill um, that would be able to be transferred into that industry if I ever wanted to go into that type of industry. Like I think everyone has skills that are transferable to any industry or any lived experience that you can then relate to in another setting. So 100% to what you were saying. Mm. And that probably is a good good move into the next question I wanted to ask is the economics of a business like yours. Now, I'm not asking you to open the books and talk us through <laughs> the A to Z, but that would be another perception people have. And I certainly used to have that is people in the education space, you can't make a good living, right? And I think that's why people go into law, banking yep. and consulting because that's what society tells us that you can have a great living. Mm. But education, I'm sure you can have a great living and probably a, a really enjoyable living. Uh, what have been your learnings there about the economics of a business and, and making it financially sustainable but then still having that service mindset? Yeah, totally. So I think, you know, I, I personally subscribe to the notion of um, – you know, I believe you can make a good income and good living in any industry. You just need to be smart in the way you go about it. So, for example, with education, um, there's a couple of things that you need to understand when, when you're working with educators. So, for example, for us, with working with schools, quite often their the schools are shut for nearly about eight weeks, ten weeks with school holidays. Um, so, you know, there's always a, a process of either reframing um, in business, like you've got to reframe whatever challenges you've faced and find positives. So for me, the positive in in the time where I can't actually facilitate is when I can work on the business um, or I can take some time out for myself. Um, when it comes to ensuring that, you know, if you want to earn a good wage, one of the most important things that you need to ask yourself is, you know, at what cost? Like what is the everything in this life has a sacrifice point. So you can't always have, especially when you're starting a business, you can't have the pie. You can't make the pie and eat it too. Mm. Um, you need to go, okay, at what point, what, like what is my minimum income that I need to be able to generate, to be able to live the life I want to live? What are some of the things and values that I, that I have that, you know, are, are non-negotiables. Um, and I think that's a really good bookmark for, to understand, you know, what is a wage that you would want to have or settle on if you were wanting to to start your own business? Um, you know, for me, it was, you know, I have I've got a daughter, I've got my wife, um, and I need to, you know, keep food on the table for them and also put a, a roof over my head. I'm not a very materialistic person, so those types of things don't really resonate for me. Um, so for me, um, I had a specific figure that I could go, okay, if I can make that amount of money, um, that will allow me to live this type of lifestyle, which I'm comfortable with at this point, and I can put mm. whatever else money, whatever other income that I generate back into the business. Um, and that's, mm. I think, a, a mindset thing that you need to have as a, 
as an entrepreneur or as a founder or as a business owner is that Rome wasn't built in the day. Um, mm. These things take time and you need to show it the respect it deserves if you're into, into it for a long-term game. And, and I'm assuming, and the word there is assuming, with particularly with schools and with that education space, the ROI for even the customer who's your student is not evident straight away. So totally. maybe the first few sessions are free, you build a bit of momentum, you probably have put in those hard yards and then... Again, as I'm showing here, but the fourth, fifth session might be a paid offering. Is that a fair assumption? Um, it's a good point. Like for us, we, when I first started the program, we we gave like a, a discounted rate. Um, so we were able to use the discounted workshop that we provided, but then gain student feedback, which we could use for our marketing and, and, and pushing further programs. So I think that, as, a, as anyone who wants to start a business, um, especially when you're facilitating or, or coaching or counseling, you need to, if you, if you haven't had ex- paid experience um, before, the, there is that level of some pro bono work to be able to get your runs on the board, to be able to get some feedback from your sessions, feedback from um, your workshops that then you can use to market to be able to earn paid work. Um, I was quite fortunate that because I was crossing over from my own business I and, and I'd already kind of started to chip away at that while I was still working full-time employed for someone else so I had already had those that IP behind me so I didn't necessarily have to do much pro bono work with Arrive and Thrive we had schools and and um, institutes um, and community members that wanted to pay straight off the bat and I think there's also a fine line between offering something free and then offering something that's paid, quite often in my experience, the the, the paid work, people kind of take a little bit more seriously. Um, mm. And so it's like, okay, cool. It's been, you know, obviously there's a price to it. That price, um, you know, is competitive. And so that obviously means that they, they put a lot of love and care into their, their work. And that's the experience that I've had with our community members is that they're, They'll, they'll let you know if it's too much and, and that's helpful feedback. But quite often um, we've rarely had a, a um, uh, I suppose, negative feedback about our price because we've got that reputation, we've got those runs on the board, we've got the positive feedback um, and we've got the review process too if we do need to change our programs mm. with our community members. And it probably goes back to what he said earlier about having conversations with people doing this stuff to yeah. bounce ideas. Like, and I did this too for listeners' context is I've reached out to you, I've reached out to a few others and just building my data points and going, this is what I'm thinking. Do you mm. think I'm on the right track? Because also you don't want to come across as greedy and go to a school yeah. and say, I'm going to charge you 5,000 bucks so I think I'm the best course around mm. when no one charges that rate. Yep. So I think conversation is probably the key there. Totally. The other point that I'm, I'm curious to ask you, mate, is is tell me about the importance of distribution and reach. Like if you use the business metaphor, particularly in retail, say if you have an awesome drink product, you want to get it into Coles and Woolworths and Metcash and 7-Eleven, yep. right? Now we know schools, there's a million and a half schools. Every suburb has its own school. Do you have, all over the years, have you built a model about who you reach out to and then find a partnership? Because you could use a spray and pray approach, right? We mm. reach out to everyone and whoever sticks, sticks. Yep. But then the match might not be beneficial to both. I'm quite fortunate that with um, with our community members, we've got a mix of independent Catholic and government schools mm. um, as well as tertiary providers, so at the TAFE and, and university level too. The, 
the thing that I would probably say about that is that when you're developing, in our case in education, when you're developing a product or a, or a program, there's many layers within our context. So it's either, okay, are you developing a, a year nine, a year 10, a year 11, or year 12 program? You know, is the information you're going to be sharing for one school, is it going to be relatable to the next school? Um, and one thing that you need to make sure of is that targeting, say, because I've seen a lot of people do this in the past, they go, okay, I want to work with independent schools because that's where the money is. That's the perceive, the perception mm. is that there's money in independent schools. And again, if you're jumping into education to make money, mm. it's it's the wrong approach. So for us, it was like, okay, what what are we noticing that students are having the biggest challenge with? And quite often it was that transition period from year 12 into university. We know one in four students drop out of university in that first year. So we were like, okay, we want to make sure that we create a program first and foremost for year 12s in that tr transition period. And then we go, okay, cool. Let's try and focus on working with, because we've always been in the mindset of, we don't want to just target one particular student audience. We want to work with as many Victor um, Victorians and Australians as we can um, in that education space because we believe it's like a national problem of that that transition process. So when I reflect back on our journey, it was, okay, let's develop one really good year 12 program. Let's focus on pushing that to all year 12s, um, no matter if it's government school, independent school, or a Catholic school. Um, and let's work really closely with the school to understand their pain points too so we can support them. So quite often for us, it was, um, you know, the the school was finding it difficult to support so many students because there's only a few career counsellors in each school. So we're like, okay, cool. How can we deliver the information that they need to hear that the career counsellor is trying to deliver the student needs to hear, um, but in a fun and interactive way. And that kind of led us down that path of of working specifically with those, the, the community members that we do now, um, because we were solving that that problem that the career counsellor had and the student was facing. Fascinating insights. And I think you've distilled some of the myths people have of education and facilitation where they think of that career counsellor sitting in one room. You yep. go in and you go, Tyson, I want to figure out a job I want. And they give you a book. I mean, that's how my experience was. They give you a book. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, the list of universities, go figure it out. So I think you've yeah. kind of told us is more than that. And it's, it's literally building a business, right? Doing the research, understanding the customer, building a program around that customer and then facilitating it. That's it, man. And, and you know, mm. you're always going to tweak as you go. Like as any, um, in my opinion, in any any switched on business owner is going to tweak as they go. They're going to find new um, scaffolding points for your product. So for us, for example, we knew that from a scaling perspective, we knew that it'd be great to facilitate face-to-face -face in every single school, but that's just not going to be possible. So we need to develop online learning modules that can support our further learnings. We, may, we need to develop, say, a product that can support them in their career discovery. And what we're trying to do is just refine that process so the student has more self-awareness, more um, capacity to make decisions when they have those conversations with their career counsellor at school, if that makes sense. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Awesome. Now, time for the final sprint, Tyson. Just some quick questions. Yeah, cool, man. Are there one or two other players in this space that you learn from and they inspire you? Yeah, definitely. Like, um, 
I um, personally am a massive fan of Josh Farr. I think um, what he does um, in the tertiary space and with university leaders um, is inspiring. Um, And he's someone that I use as a bookmark for for success in my own business. Um, We started our journeys at a very similar time um, and seeing the way he's gone about it um, and the way he's been able to, you know, develop the community that he has with campus, I think is, is inspiring. So um, for him personally, I, I go, um, I tune in a lot with his LinkedIn posts and so forth. Um, the other person um, I'm a bit of a fanboy of, but he doesn't, he doesn't know that I'm a fanboy and he doesn't actually know me is um, Hugh Van Kolenberg from the Resilience mm. Project. Um, yep. I model what's, I perceive the resilience project to be is what I want arrive and thrive to be, um, you know, five, 10 years down the track. And then last one, Tyson, how do you think education's changed in 2022 with COVID and virtual? Like what's been the biggest change you've noticed? Yeah, I think with COVID, so during 2020 and 2021, there was a large, you know, online learning period. And I think people always felt that the online space was really important in education and it still really is um, in my eyes. But I feel like we've done a 360. We've come back to, you know, we had face-to-face learning, then we had online learning through through COVID and, and you know, there might be some periods of this year that we do that. Um, but I think we've really connected the, the sheer importance of face-to-face engagement in the classroom or in the lecture theatre. Like I think you just can't take away that magic that occurs from a professor and a student, from a, a year nine teacher with a year nine student, from a grade five teacher to a grade five student, whatever it is, you just can't replicate that magic that occurs um, in the classroom online. And I think that's something that is going to be a real important factor moving forward in education is how do we capture that magic in all settings, if it's online, if it's face-to-face, just to continue to inspire young people or, or, or students in general to um, achieve their dreams because that's essentially the industry that we're in. We're, we're training people to achieve um, what they want to achieve and it's a pretty cool industry in my part, in my opinion. Well, that's the finish line, Tyson. Thank you so much for joining me on this seg- new segment. Um, for listeners wondering, please check out Tyson Day. I think they can contact you on your LinkedIn. Did you want to yeah. share your contact details? Absolutely, man. So um, listeners, you can reach me um, at arrivethrive.com.au. Just go to our website there. Um, my personal email is tyson, T-Y-S-O-N, at arrivethrive.com.au. So if you've got any uh, thoughts around this episode or you want to you know, learn more about the Arrive and Thrive journey, happy to help. Um, and you can tune into our content on, on LinkedIn, um, Instagram, and our own podcast at the Arrive and Thrive Careers podcast. Well, there you have it. I hope you now have a better understanding of the career and education industry, whether you're considering starting your own business, joining an exciting one like Arrive and Thrive, or just exploring your curiosity. Stay tuned for the next episode in this series in a couple of weeks with a leader and an author that I learned so much from And through the conversation, I explore my curiosity on writing, publishing, and unpacking leadership.